Hello and welcome to Crime Theories Off the Record, a podcast series where I explain my interpretation of criminological theories behind the why, when, and where people misbehave. This is your host, Karen. Hello everyone, this is an unconventional episode for me, as I'll dig into some context before briefly introducing our theory. Most criminological theories examine why it is that some individuals develop an orientation to commit crime, often called criminality, whereas others do not. Although they differ in many ways, this perspective shares the view that criminality is something that develops over time, thus they focus on the conditions that surround people as they are raised in this organization communities are ineffectively parented for years on end, spend their youth in schools that frustrate them or are unable to earn their commitment, associate with delinquents in a gang, or perhaps are incarcerated for a lengthy tenure. For this approaches, crime, the actual behavior act of breaking the law, is implicitly assumed to be inevitable and does not in need of any special explanation. Those individuals with strong criminality will take advantage of opportunities to offend and thus have more involvement in crime than those with low levels of criminality. Some theories, which I'll cover in the future, are concerned with crime and not with criminality. For this reason, advocates call the perspective crime science. Clark 2010 has asked whether crime science, which tries to understand why crime events happen, and criminology, which tries to understand why some people are criminals, should be treated as separate disciplines. Further, in contrast to much of criminology that seeks to uncover the root causes of criminal behavior, these scholars focus not on what happens in the distant past, but rather on what is happening in the present situation. For them, whether a criminal act will be undertaken presents a theoretical challenge and has important policy and crime control implications. In particular, they reject the idea that offenders are like billiard balls, pushed and pulled into crime in a mechanical way. Instead, they assert that offenders are active, thinking participants in their criminal ventures. They make decisions, they make choices, and why they choose to commit a crime in one situation and not another is a challenging criminological question. These perspectives are at times also called opportunity theories because they contend that no crime can be committed unless the opportunity to complete the act is present. This observation is such a truism that it seems almost superfluous to make, but once the concept of opportunity is not taken for granted but rather becomes the object of study, the importance of linking opportunity to crime becomes apparent. Thus, the nature of opportunity affects what, where, how, and against whom crimes are committed. In a given situation, it shapes what choices offenders make. For example, they decide to burglarize one house and not another. Notably, traditional criminology has taken opportunity for granted. Its concern has been with why offenders have the propensity or motivation to break the law. By contrast, crime science or opportunity theories are less interested in explaining such criminality. Instead, this perspective concentrates on why, when motivated offenders might enter a situation. Sometimes a crime occurs and sometimes it does not. Opportunity is often the factor. The focus on the proximate situation and opportunity, rather than on the distant past, also leads us to explore how offenders make the decision to break the law. One perspective suggests that much, if not most, crime occurs in the context of the everyday lives that offenders and their victims lead. With some justification, scholars have linked crime to the bad conditions in society, 
things but the logical and powerful enough to create criminality. By contrast, opportunity theories tend to see crime as emerging from the routines that people, whether offenders or their victims, follow as they go about their daily lives. This idea was captured early on by Lawrence Cohen and Marcus Felsen when they proposed their routine activity theory. Off the record, I had a pleasure of exchanging correspondence with Dr. Felsen while working on my thesis during graduate school. As some may or may not know, I have experience doing research with routine activity theory, also referred to by its own acronym RAT. RAT. Dr. Felsen developed this perspective in conjunction with Lawrence Cohen in 1979 and has been its foremost champion since that time. A little fun fact is that Dr. Felsen had no intention of being a criminologist. Starting his first academic position in 1972 at the University of Illinois, however, he became involved in a project trying to correlate social indicators such as trends in the economy with various outcomes. As a new professor, Dr. Felsen was assigned crime, which no other scholar wished to study as his dependent or outcome variable. At the time, crime rates were rising rapidly, but somewhat perplexingly. The United States was becoming more affluent. Traditional criminological theories which link offending to disadvantage thus did not seem to work. As a result, Felsen traveled outside criminology for explanations. Writing in the third person, Dr. Felsen recounts his intellectual pathway to routine activity theory. He then began to reflect backwards, searching for ideas. He reread Amos Haley's seminal 1950 book, Human Ecology, to help him think about crime in more tangible terms. He drew on ideas from his famous father's radiological work that had identified four densities of the human body and wondered whether they were three or four elements whose physical convergence made crime likely. Now to the fun stuff. He put to use his own PhD on the stratification of consumer behavior, wondering whether some consumer goods were more likely to be stolen. Professor David Bardua told Felsen about Patrick Cole Cujon and other writings on crime opportunity. This produced the routine activity approach, the equations and the theory connected to it. Now, this is important as traditionally, criminology has focused most of its attention on offenders and on what motivates them to commit crime, or in the case of control theory, how offenders' characteristics stop them from acting on their motivations. It has long been pointed out that even if offenders decide to commit crimes, they cannot do so unless the opportunity to break the law is present. But this observation had been either ignored or treated as though it were true but tried. The working assumption among criminologists has been that the extent to which individuals are involved in crime is determined by their criminal motivations or criminality and that crime rates across social locations are determined by the number of criminally motivated offenders in any given location. If opportunity plays a role in crime, then it is assumed to be minor. Over the past couple of decades or more, Another group of scholars has argued that the distinction between criminality and crime or a crime event is not trivial but rather consequential. Criminality, the motivation or predisposition to offend, may matter, but such willingness to break the law cannot be automatically translated into a concrete criminal act. Opportunity is a necessary condition for any specific crime to be committed. More broadly, these scholars argue that the distribution of opportunities and individuals' access to these opportunities shape in important ways. Why certain geographic areas have higher crime rates than other areas and why certain individuals are more involved in crime than other individuals. As mentioned earlier, perspectives illuminating the connection between opportunities and criminal events are called opportunity theories. They also often are grouped under the label of environmental criminology because they examine how features of the physical and social environment present or limit criminal opportunities. But before I fully focus on routine activity theory, it is important to continue reviewing some of the social 
social context. The focus on opportunities suggests a pragmatic approach to preventing crime. Decrease opportunities for offending and crime will be reduced. The concept itself is simple and makes sense. The advice to reduce crime opportunities often leads to a focus on aspects of the environment that are most easily manipulated. We can see this with the addition of security cameras or minimizing the amount of cash in a cash register. Although not without merit, the tendency of this perspective to focus on the pragmatic and to avoid discussing issues of inequality and power and how they structure criminal opportunities is an implicit ideological decision. Off the record, Felsen 1998 criticized conventional criminology for its politicization which, in my humble opinion, is fair as we have seen the media polarize things into right-wing or left-wing, or in more popular terms, liberal or conservative. The point is, this mentality has pushed some people to view things as if there is something you oppose, blame that for crime. If there is something you favor, link that to crime prevention. If there is some group you despise, blame them and protect others, which shouldn't be the case. In fact, we should be critical of our environment and leaders and question the links of crime to the mundane or everyday features of society. Dr. Felsen 1998 used the term pestilence fallacy to describe the tendency of criminologists to treat crime as one of many evils that comes from the evils in society. But his a priority assumption that crime is largely unrelated to the evils of society, to social problems, limits what he will systematically explore as related to crime causation. Similarly, he used the term the not-me fallacy to describe the supposedly mistaken assumption that most individuals would like to think that they are fundamentally different from serious offenders in their willingness to commit crimes. Everybody could do at least some crime at some time. Felsen's preference to see criminality as largely evenly distributed across society allow him to ignore those social conditions, including factors related to socio-economic inequality that might create stronger criminal motivations in some people than in others. This pragmatic focus and tendency to avoid structural and political issues make this theory attractive in the current social context. After the strong tilt of social and crime policies to the right during the 1980s and early 1990s, the nation may be considered to be in the post-conservative period. Many conservative themes remain vital in American politics, but so do progressive ideas. Although the base members of the political parties might take rigid ideological positions and fight one another vigorously, the nation has moved into something of an ideological standoff or gridlock. Most citizens hover around the center of the political spectrum, although not rejecting social welfare and free market ideas. Americans have become suspicious of liberal efforts to build a large welfare state and of conservative efforts to to create a state that simultaneously imposes right-wing morals and others and gives corporations and financial institutions unfettered discretion to do what they wish. In this context, ideology often is askew in favor of doing what works or what seems to make sense. Indeed, within the criminal justice system, there is increasing emphasis on employing evidence-based or what works approaches that can be shown to reduce crime. Now, to really focus on the theory, just as a chemical reaction cannot happen without all of the necessary ingredients mixed together, Telson 1998 suggested that the chemistry for crime requires all the necessary ingredients. This is not a new argument, as environmental criminologists argue that a criminal event involves not just a person willing to offend but also the opportunity 
opportunity to act on these motives. Felsen's special contribution is that he helped to demarcate the key elements of opportunity. In his classic article with Lawrence Cohen, Felsen noted that each successfully completed violation minimally requires an offender with both criminal inclinations and the ability to carry out those inclinations. This is another way of saying that a criminal event requires a motivated offender who has the opportunity to act on those motivations. This opportunity or ability to carry out a crime in turn involves two elements. First, there must be a person or object providing a suitable target for the offender. Second, there must be an absence of guardians capable of preventing violations. Cohen and Felsen chose the term suitable target rather than victim because they meant to include not only people but also property. They chose the term capable guardians rather than police because they meant to include not only law enforcement personnel but also all means by which a target might be guarded or by any bystander. Most often such guardianship is provided informally by family members, friends, neighbors, or other members of the public. But guardianship also can be furnished by other means such as dogs and security cameras. Cohen and Felsen 1979 limited their analysis to predatory crime or crime involving offender target contact. For a crime event to happen, these three elements, motivated offender, suitable target, and an absence of guardianship must converge in time and space. In a truly innovative insight, the author suggested that the major determinant of this convergence was the routine activity of people in society and thus the naming of their perspective as routine activity theory. The term routine carried two meanings. Most important, it was a technical term that referred to the everyday activities that people in society followed, when and where they worked, attended school, recreated, and stayed home. More implicit, the term routine meant to imply the mundane in life, not the special or abnormal. Cohen and Felsen were calling attention to the fact that the amount of crime was influenced not by the pathological features of society, but rather by its normal organization. In Dr. Felsen's 1998 words, this approach emphasizes how illegal activities feed on routine legal activities. As Bottoms 1994 put it, Routine activities theory, in effect, embeds the concept of opportunity with the routine parameters of the day-to-day -day lives of ordinary people. Cohen and Felsen were particularly interested in explaining changes in crime rates over time. In this sense, their perspective initially was stated as a macro-level theory of crime. Jumps in crime rates typically have been attributed to social problems in America that enlarge the pool of motivated offenders. By contrast, Cohen and Felsen 1979 showed that substantial increases in the opportunity to carry out predatory violations have undermined society's mechanisms for social control and heightened lawlessness independent of the characteristics of offenders. They maintained that the convergence in time and space of suitable targets and the absence of capable guardians can lead to a large increase in crime rates without any increase or change in the structural conditions that motivate individuals to engage in crime. As Dr. Felsen 1998 reminded us, offenders are but one element in a crime and perhaps not even the most important. Thus, Cohen and Felsen 1979 argued that the key reason for rise in predatory offenses was that since World War II, the United States had experienced a major shift of routine activities away from the home. Because homes were now increasingly left unattended during the day, they had become candidates for burglary because the attractive targets within them no longer were as vigilantly guarded. Similarly, as people spend more time at large in society, going to and from work, school, 
and leisure activities, they were more likely to come into contact with motivated offenders in circumstances where guardianship was lacking. Thus, the possibility for robbery and assault was increased. Furthermore, Cohen and Felsen linked property crimes not to economic deprivation, but rather to the production of goods that were expensive, durable, and portable, and that had become more common in an increasingly affluent society. Electronics and vehicles were stolen more often than food and refrigerators because the former were more suitable targets. They could move, be used again, and bring payoff. Contrary to much criminological thinking, prosperity could bring about higher rather than lower crime rates by expanding the number of attractive targets available to motivated offenders. The focus on the possible crime-inducing effects of prosperity is illuminating, but it also shows the tendency of routine activity theory to ignore the potential role of poverty and inequality in generating crime opportunities, not to mention in generating criminal motivations. To be fair, Dr. Felsen 1998 suggested that poverty areas may increase temptations and decrease controls. For example, poor people are more likely to leave next to shopping malls, commercial strips, warehouse loading docks, parking lots and structures, train yards, factories, bars and taverns, medical facilities, and so on. These places provide opportunities to offend. That is, there is more to steal and fewer people at night to watch things as well as stragglers who are easy to attack. Similarly, in poor areas there is a larger market for second-hand goods, inducing the establishment of stores that may encourage theft by their willingness to fence stalling property. Such areas also may contain more vulnerable populations, such as immigrants, who are more likely to be victimized. Still, Felsen failed to develop systematically within this theory how the political economy shapes illegal opportunities and shapes to the social distribution of crime. He might have considered, for example, that innovative work of Maomi, 1989, who presented macro-level data showing that the effects of inequality on rates of rape are mediated by routine activities. One of the hidden causes of inequality, Maomi, 1989, concluded, is that some people are more constrained to live risk-prone lifestyles. These people are burdened most heavily by the problem of crime. Numerous tests of routine activity theory using macro-level data have been conducted. Pratt and Collins' 2005 meta-analysis showed that most of the tests have measured the guardianship component of the theory. Even so, the results generally support the conclusion that routine activities influence rates of crime across ecological units. It is important to note, however, the routine activity theory has been used on the micro level to explain the behavior of individuals. Thus, research reveals that when youths are engaged in structured conventional activities or routines, they are less likely to offend. This insight is consistent with Hershey's 1969 ideas on the social bond of involvement. Wayne Osgood and colleagues 1996, however, noted that Hershey's work did not specify what uninvolved adolescents do with their time. For Osgood and colleagues, the key routine activity that fosters crime is time spent in unstructured socializing with peers, especially without adult authority figures present to supervise them. This kind of routine activity exposes youths to situations such as riding around or partying with friends that are likely to offer the lure and opportunity for crime and other deviant activities. There is also a growing body of scholarship showing how routine activities can affect who in society is most likely to be victimized. A perspective similar to routine activity theory had been independently developed by other researchers. Based on victimization surveys, they noted that some individuals were more likely to be victimized than others. 
They explain this differential victimization by a lifestyle model in which those who lifestyles or routine activities are riskier, exposing them to potential offenders, are more likely to experience a higher level of personal victimization. For example, people who go to bars, drink, stay out late, and walk home alone are more likely to be victimized than people who spend their evenings at home with family members. Studies tend to support a lifestyle or routine activity explanation of victimization. In fact, the two models have been seen as complementary and often are integrated into the lifestyle routine activity theory, commonly known by its acronym of LRAT, LRAT. However, the results of studies are at times inconsistent and often based on incomplete research designs, such as failure to control for the effects of context. Hence, continued systematic research is needed. Nevertheless, the attractiveness of opportunity theories of crime is that they avoid larger discussions of whether the United States is excessively unequal or excessively moral permissive and argue that crime can be prevented meaningfully without a major cultural or social revolution. Instead, by changing a few locks and installing a few alarms or similar modest interventions, we can make ourselves safer. Off the record, that is not always the case. These policy recommendations are in fact potentially important. Criminal opportunities do matter. Decreasing them can save lives. Further, this theory argues against get-off policies, instead showing the offender's choices are shaped not so much by uncertain threats of imprisonment, but rather by the obstacles to criminal gratification found in the immediate situation. Even so, the risk in trumpeting pragmatic policies is that it suggests that crime is not influenced by the other evils in society. In the end, fundamental social evils or root causes might be difficult to change, but this does not alter the reality that such causes exist or obviate the need to counteract untoward effects on individuals. One other shift in focus merits attention. Traditional theories might be called the criminology of bad people. In the the sense that the goal is to explain what it is about these offenders that causes them to harm others in some way. By contrast, routine activity theory and similar approaches might be called the criminology of good people because they focus on how non-offenders engage in behaviors that either increase or decrease the risk of being a crime victim. Importantly, this means that the most important strategy to reduce crime does not involve fixing bad people, which is very hard to do, but informing good people about the steps they can take to reduce their exposure to criminal opportunities, which scholars believe is far easier and consequential. The logic of routine activity theory suggests two possibilities for actions that so-called good people might take. One is to engage in daily routines that minimize their contact with those motivated to commit crimes. The other is that when in a situation where a motivated offender is present to remove one of the elements needed for a crime to be possible. Although largely disinterested in why people are motivated to offend, routine activity theory is most compatible with rational choice theory and Gofferson and Hershey's 1990 theory of low self-control. In any case, the link between this Seemingly dissimilar perspective is the notion of the effort it takes to commit a crime or conversely the ease with which a crime can be accomplished.
1998, argue that crime is less likely to happen when it is made less attractive. Because offenders are guided by the lure of quick pleasure and the avoidance of imminent pain, anything that makes crime harder to commit also makes it less likely to happen. In fact, Felser noted that attempts should be made to assist in self-control by not making opportunities to crime too tempting to those deficient in self-control. From a rational choice perspective, these limitations place an opportunity are costs that reduce the expected utility of crime. And from a self-control perspective, making Making crime harder to commit makes it less immediately gratifying. Although low self-control undermines the ability to resist criminal opportunities, the lack of such steadfastness also makes it less likely that an offender will engage in a crime that requires diligence of overcoming barriers. In the end, this perspective shared with routine activity theory the view that in any situation where a crime event could transpire, the decision to offend will be influenced by the ease or difficulty with which the offender under search for gratification can be satisfied. Again, routine activity theory does not rest inherently in a particular view of what motivates people to become offenders. It argues that only that for crime to happen, there must be motivated offenders. Conceivably, then, this perspective could be explored. Its compatibility with social learning theory, strain theory, feminist theory, and any other motivational theories of crime. Thus far, this potential linkage have not been explored systematically. Rather, implicitly or explicitly, routine activity theory is based on a view of offenders as gratification seekers who wish to gain quick pleasure and avoid imminent pain. This working assumption about offenders is a chief reason why routine activity theory, similar to rational choice theory, leads to the policy recommendation that fight crime through situational crime prevention measures. Finally, although routine activity theory was not developed to focus in detail on offenders, scholars within environmental criminology have taken up this task because crime events involve the interaction of offenders and targets in time and space. These scholars argue that it is necessary to study not just the routines of potential victims, but also the routines of potential offenders and how they select their targets to victimize. This is often called offender search theory. Offenders do not wander randomly looking for crime opportunities. Rather, they engage in pattern behaviors, typically traveling to certain areas but not others and traveling only so far from home. They develop cognitive maps of their environment and tend to commit crimes in places that are familiar to them. They also evolve mental templates which are holistic conceptualizations that are based on experience and routines that are used to predefine the characteristics of a suitable target or a suitable place and to identify what a great chance for crime is or what a good opportunity could be or how to search for chances and opportunities. In short, offenders play an active role in producing criminal opportunities, where they are willing to travel and how they interpret their social environment and when they get to their destination help to determine which targets they come into contact with and which targets they see as attractive and capable of being victimized. Ultimately, the distribution of offense occurs time and space will be a byproduct of this intersection between the routine activities of both victims and offenders. Thank you for listening and choosing our podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're hearing from as we delve into more criminological theories. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode. Off the record, if you need help visualizing crime theories or only have a few moments to review, feel free to visit and follow us on Instagram at ct.offtherecord.com.